This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. We have the Tathagata's words to see and listen to and contemplate, remember and accept. And based on all this, we can vow to taste their truth by being them in a non-conceptual way. We're uh, taking up the story of the eighth ancestor, Buddhanandi, and Kazan's commentary. <clears throat> Kazan says, the Bodhisattva in the ten abodes, on the, in the advanced stages of the path to Buddhahood, does not clearly see Buddha nature. <clears throat> In the same sutra, this is the Parinirvana Sutra, the same chapter the Buddha says, even though the Bodhisattva in the Ten Abodes has seen the nature of the Tathagata personally, however, it's not clear. So, Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas, according to this sutra, are don't clear, don't see Buddha nature, their own Buddha natures, their Buddha natures pervading their whole experience moment to moment, but, um, they're not looking for it because they realized, uh, <clears throat> that this body and mind is not themselves. They realized this teaching of not self. So they, um, don't feel any need to go further and see their true self. <clears throat> and bodhisattvas are open to Buddha's new teachings. So they hear the teachings of Buddha nature and they, <clears throat> they, uh, they look and without seeing anything, they Somewhat see their Buddha nature, but not completely, <coughs> not clearly. We have this teaching Zen term called Kensho that literally means seeing nature, short for seeing Buddha nature. I think it originated in the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Ancestor in the early days of Zen. And, uh, still a popular term in Rinzai Zen. Dogen Zenji was not fond of the term. Maybe he, uh, felt that, um, it could be misunderstood as that Buddha nature is something to see. But, uh, if we understand seeing nature is just a phrase, it's not a literal, um, not to be taken literally. It's um, 
seeing with the Dharma eye, verifying uh, Buddha nature, then um, may be possible. And Rinzai said, they say, this is even the, the gateway to authentic Zen practice is to see one's nature in a, in a, um, in a, um, sudden and, uh, immediate, non-conceptual way. So, uh, <coughs> but then the sutra says that even bodhisattvas on these advanced stages don't see it clearly. Does that mean, um, so-called Kensho is, is, uh, not, is, is kind of seeing Buddha nature, but not clearly. Rinzai Zen people might say, no, it's seeing it clearly. But, uh, we have this Nirvana Sutra that, um, humbly brings out this issue of maybe this so-called Kensho is, is, has something to do with, um, being Buddha nature, but, uh, but uh, it's still not um, completely clear, which is why in Rinzai Zen they say it's not the end of the path, it's the beginning. A glimpse of Buddha nature is not totally clear like the Buddha uh, sees Buddha nature according to the sutra. And, uh, and there are other Buddha nature teachings in India <clears throat> that say... Um, all, all beings equally share Buddha nature, equally are Buddha nature, but for um, ordinary sentient beings, it's almost completely obscured. Obscured by what? By our um, habitual karmic tendencies, by um, greed, hate, and delusion. They seem to obscure our Buddha nature. And even um, conceptual thinking seems to obscure Buddha nature. And even dualistic perception, like seeing colors over there and hearing sounds over there by this one over here, dualistic sensory perception, it still obscures this non-dual spacious expanse of Buddha nature. So sentient beings... Their nature is non-dual, timeless, boundless, impersonal, ungraspable, ordinary mind, Buddha nature. But um, because they are looking elsewhere, because we are looking elsewhere, us sentient beings um, <clears throat> overlook it. And then the teaching says, sentient beings, um, Buddha nature is, uh, is, um, almost completely obscured. For bodhisattvas on the path to Buddhahood, Buddha nature is kind of, um, partially obscured. It's mixed with, um, dualistic perceptions and thoughts. So bodhisattvas on the path, um, Sometimes they accord with their Buddha nature, and um, sometimes they forget. And then Buddhas, 
the culmination of the path for Buddha, na- for Buddhas, their Buddha nature is completely unobscured. So all the time they are uh, continuously practicing and verifying uh, the reality of Buddha nature. But for the sentient beings, the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas, the Buddha nature is exactly the same. It's just a matter of how obscured it is, how hidden it is. <clears throat> so that seems to go along with this teaching in the Nirvana Sutra, that um, <clears throat> for Shravakas and Pradeka Buddhas, they're not interested in Buddha nature, so therefore they, they miss it. For Bodhisattvas, they see it, but kind of like a mirage in the distance or occasional, uh, occasionally, <clears throat> and Buddhas see it clearly. <clears throat> uh, moreover, on the basis of what the Tathagata taught, this is in the Nirvana Sutra. Um, bodhisattvas understand a little that their true nature actually exists. And they say happily, we have transmigrated in samsara for countless eons and our inability to grasp the fact or to understand the fact of this eternally abiding Buddha nature is due to perplexity about the absence of self. It's due to our perplexity and um, somewhat confused understanding of what is not self. That's why we um, we um, can't fully get this fact of the eternally abiding Buddha nature because we've heard the teaching of not-self for so long, we might say. In the same sutra, the same chapter, the Buddha says, in the ten abodes, or even on the tenth stage of bodhisattva path, they are unable to see Buddha nature. So these all these quotes from the Nirvana Sutra. Once the Tathagata has explained it, the Bodhisattvas do see it a little. Once these Bodhisattva Mahasattvas have seen it, they cry out, Wonderful, a world-honored one! We have transmigrated in samsara for countless eons and have always been perplexed about this teaching of not-self. But now we understand. That's that's the end of the sutra quote. And we might uh, take this as, now we bodhisattvas understand that um, that you, the Buddha, were always teaching that this body is not self. These feelings are not self. These um, conceptions and perceptions are not self. These um, karmic formations and habitual tendencies are not self. And this dualistic consciousness that knows a world outside itself is not self. Uh, we've understood that you taught that, but um, but we forgot about um, the possibility that there might be a reality that's not these five aggregates. 
these five aggregates are not self, but um, we never before asked you if there is a self until our friend Kashyapa in this Nirvana Sutra said, is there a self? And the Buddha said, yes, it's called Buddha nature. So uh, anyway, Kezang spends uh, like a whole half a page just quoting all these parts of the Nirvana Sutra about how all these beings um, don't clearly recognize their Buddha nature. <clears throat> Why is he bringing all this up here? <coughs> I think he's just trying to encourage us that um, anything that we can get through words and um, discussion, uh, although it may be in the right direction and we can get it conceptually, it's very challenging to um, non-conceptually just be our Buddha nature. That's how I would take it. Uh, moreover, Kazan says, though you say and discuss the fact that you have um, extinguished seeing and hearing, maybe Kazan students were saying, we no longer see and hear. Remember, seeing and hearing is a kind of um, a du- kind of dualistic perception. Seeing colors over there, hearing sounds over there. Some of Kazan students might say, "We can see through that. We've extinguished that kind of dualistic perception. Seeing o- objects separate from mind, hearing sounds separate from mind." But Kazan says, even though you say you've had have ceased or eliminated or extinguished seeing and hearing, that you've forgotten body and mind, that you've avoided delusion and enlightenment and all these categories and um, are separated from purity and impurity, all these dualities, you still can't see the truth even in a dream. This is... Kazan just with his, I think, high standard um, admonitions to his very devoted, sincere students. Therefore, you shouldn't seek it, the truth. You shouldn't seek it in emptiness or in form. How much less should you seek it in the Buddhas and ancestors? And uh, maybe part of what he's saying here is... Um, don't seek for the truth and don't seek for your Buddha nature in any possible understanding or experience of any kind, even the good ones. Don't look for it as some experience. Good people for vast numbers of eons up to the present, how many cycles of birth and death have you passed through? <clears throat> this is standard Buddhist teaching of endless cycles of rebirth driven by karmic confusion of believing that I am this body and mind and uh, grasping a body and mind. So even when the consciousness is free from um, a body after death, it quickly looks for another one because it's looking for a familiar experience, which is that of dwelling in a body. I can't stand this disembodied 
Bardo realm. Quick. Where's a body? This is the teaching uh, of the tradition. Not in some, in some, in some thought exactly like, uh, I'm describing it. I'm imagining this is like, the consciousness is not thinking in a human kind of way. The stream of consciousness is just, um, deeply habituated to grasping a body. So it, it's, um, it has a compulsion to, um, find a body. And, uh, and where does it do that? If it's a, if it's a body that already has a consciousness linked with it, then it's too late. You can only have one at a time. So it looks for right where, um, right where a mother and father are in union and, um, and a new, uh, a moment of conception is about to happen. That's where the consciousness looks. I want to go there. There's my chance, and the timing has to be just right. Right at that moment of conception, the consciousness uh, unites with a new body. Shakyamuni Buddha tells the story, and even in the early discourses of the Pali Canon, <clears throat> is it true? Only one way to find out. But the problem is. Um, when we're going through the process ourselves, uh, apparently it's like super intense and um, it's not like our normal human mind is like, oh, cool, just like the sutras taught, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think not, right? So um, it's, just, um, it's just energy and karmic momentum coming together, this, this body thing. But... Um, but we are the kind of the living proof because here we are, consciousnesses linked with bodies. <laughs> um, all seven or eight billion of us humans, not to mention other sentient beings. It keeps happening and happening. Beings keep being born. It's, it's very rare that bodies are born without consciousness and consciousness is born without bodies. <clears throat> Buddha tells these stories, so at least um, it seems appropriate to me anyway to be open to the possibility that um, could be this way. It fits very nicely into the Buddha's system of Dharma, it seems like to me. So um, Kazan, the Zen ancestor in the Buddha's lineage, is telling the usual story. How many cycles of birth and death have you passed through? How many times have body and mind arisen and ceased? You may think, this birth and death, coming and going, is all just a dream, a delusion. There are many teachings like this. Kazan's said it himself before. But uh, here he's saying, you may think this, but... Um, Today, I really have to laugh when I hear you say it. What kind of theory is this? Is there someone who's born and dies, who comes and goes? <coughs> what do you mean by uh, a, an existent 
body, an essential body. <clears throat> and if you speak of true self, what do you mean by a dream or a delusion? From the standpoint of a true self, you cannot understand in terms of emptiness. From the standpoint of birth and death, you cannot understand it as truth. If you think in terms of empty and false or true, then by arriving at this situation, the whole thing is wrong. So it's a little confusing exactly what he's saying here. Um, but I think the gist of it is um, any idea we have about any of these teachings at all is simply an idea. And we shouldn't um, fixate on any idea. And yet he's going to keep talking in these words. <coughs> Therefore, you will only grasp this you will only really get, you only really um, realize this whole matter for the first time when you carefully and exhaustively investigate it. So it's that word, san, um, meeting with the teacher, meeting with the truth, investigating the truth. Do not vainly feign that such a place is reached by making your object emptiness or the truth. <clears throat> and uh, maybe a key point here is that don't make emptiness or truth into an object that can be grasped by a grasper. Even if you clarify the fact that it is as still and pure, or as clear and pure as level water, or as pure and unstained as space itself, will you be able to clarify the situation fully? Again, wonderful concepts, but, but all still in the realm of concepts. Then uh, Keizan tells the story of ancestor Dungshan. Priest Dungshan studied with Guishan and Yunyan. Although he was one with the myriad things and understood that the whole body, here um, whole body means um, not our physical body, but the whole body of reality, teaches the Dharma, still, he thought that this was not enough. <clears throat> so, when he understood, Dungshan understood that all of existence teaches the Dharma, he still thought that this was not enough. So, in the story of Dungshan, um, he had some some insight into when he was investigating the teaching of the non-sentient. And uh, that whole long epic story is told in the later chapter in this record about Dungshan. <clears throat> there was this teaching circulating around China at that time that um, non-sentient beings teach the Dharma. And Dungshan didn't quite understand this fully and he 
it went from teacher to teacher asking about how to understand it. And uh, <clears throat> at some point, he got it. He had a shift of perspective and understood how everything, um, all these impermanent, uh, insentient beings, as well as sentient beings, appearing in the vast space, everything is teaching reality by being expressions of reality. Um, but even though he understood that, uh, he still thought that this was not enough. For this reason, his teacher Yun Yan continued to encourage him, saying, you must be careful or meticulous in experiencing this matter. <clears throat> this is our style of our lineage of Dungshan, being very careful and meticulous in understanding the great matter. However, some doubt still remained for Dungshan. Leaving Yunyan for a while and going away, he was crossing a stream, and when he saw his reflection in the water, he suddenly got it. He suddenly um, had an insight, had a shift of perspective. And he expressed it in a verse, as famous verse of our ancestor Dungshan, which you may have heard, <clears throat> which is repeated again in the chapter on Dungshan. <clears throat> it's kind of like an awakening poem. <clears throat> Dungshan crossed this bridge where um, he encountered it. <coughs> and I also visited Dungshan's temple in China and there there's this small stream that was apparently where this incident happened and there's a bridge you have to cross over the small stream to get to the temple and that sign on the bridge says encountering it bridge <laughs> re- referring to this story um, this this poem that says um, I encounter it everywhere or I meet it everywhere and uh, this it is a word that's sometimes translated as it, sometimes translated as him, referring to Dongshan's teacher, Yun Yan. But it also means uh, something like boss, like the boss. So it's quite dynamic, you can say. Um, so the first line of the poem is, avoid seeking it somewhere else, or avoid seeking it from others, or avoid seeking it externally to yourself, or avoid seeking him, avoid seeking uh, your teacher externally, or avoid seeking the boss externally. And I think the boss is kind of like the host. The, the space is like the host that graciously uh, welcomes all the guests coming and going, all these messy guests who leave dirty dishes everywhere. Host is fine. Leave your dirty dishes wherever you want. You're welcome here within me, the host. That's the way this kind boss uh, talks to 
Avoid seeking the boss externally. First, maybe I'll just read it as it. Avoid seeking it externally, or you will be far apart from your true self. Solitary I am now, independent, and yet I meet it everywhere. It now is truly me, but I am not it. Understanding it thus, you will directly merge with suchness. That's the poem. Let's hear it again, um, translating this word as the boss. Avoid seeking the boss um, in some other, or you will be far apart from your true self, the self. I... Now go on alone and independent, but I meet the boss everywhere. The boss is truly me, but I am not the boss. Understanding it in this way, you will directly merge with suchness. It's that character again that means... uh Merge the way that teachers and disciples merge. <clears throat> so, um, some of you may know the Dungshan's poem, The Jewel Mirror Samadhi, where it's Dungshan who wrote this poem, uh, in the longer Jewel Mirror Samadhi poem, it says, uh, the Jewel Mirror Samadhi is like the, um, being the boss, right? That's what the samadhi is. And in the poem he says, you are not it. In truth, it is you. Those lines come from his own awakening poem. It, in truth, is me, but I am not it. Or, it now is you, but you are not it. So, uh, the host, uh, is just expressing itself as all these guests. Buddha nature is, is, uh, manifesting itself as each of us. But then for each of us to say, I am the reality of Buddha, it's a little too much to say it like that. It's not exactly that it's not true, but, um, it's maybe a little bit too much like carrying the self forward and saying, carrying the small self forward and saying that this individual person is Buddha. It's a little bit crude, but it's not so crude to say, um, Buddha is this, in, this individual self. Buddha is, is uh, taking the form of this person. See how it's slightly different? The, the boss, the host is, uh, 
is so-called me and you, but you and me uh, are, we shouldn't quite say that we are the host. The host is us, but we're not the host. The host comes forth and verifies each of us, but we don't carry our bodies and minds forward to verify the host. Okay. Why is uh, Kazan bringing up this story in this in this context? It seems like um, it's something about directly verifying the reality of Buddha nature. Um, after all these words that he clarified in these long discussions about the teaching of the non-sentient and so on, clarifying many things but still having some doubt when he directly saw his reflection in the water beyond all uh, ideas, he uh, became Buddha. <clears throat> Kezan says, understanding in this way, Dungshan became the root of the Soto tradition as an heir to Yunyan. Moreover, he not only understood that the whole body teaches the Dharma, but also the temple pillars and lanterns. Every particle is thus. Every land is thus. And everything is thus. Even though he understood that everything in the three times teaches the Dharma, there was something he still hadn't reached, and so he was encouraged by his teacher, Yunyan, to be most careful and meticulous. How much more do people today understand mind is Buddha or the body is Buddha in dependence on opinions or discussions? They do not understand what sort of thing the Buddha way is directly and experientially. They see that it's nothing but the opening of blossoms in spring or the falling of leaves in autumn. Again, we hear all these Zen stories that say this is the the the, the blossoms um, are the Buddha way and the falling leaves are the Buddha way, but um, but they have some idea about this. They think, oh, that's how it is. Everything just being the way it is. That's the Buddha way. It's not that it's not um, true, but the conceptual idea of it is not complete. Uh, verification of it. Or, or people think that everything abides in its Dharma position. Like Dogen says, um, firewood abides in its Dharma position, which fully includes future and past and is independent of future and past <coughs> at the same time. This is another one of those teachings that we could understand as um, firewood is this impermanent uh, expression that's um, that's includes and is dependent on the past conditions, and um, it depends on its future um, condition of ash and so on. The interdependent kind of firewood, and also. Um, 
This firewood is independent of past and future at the same time. One way we could understand this is that um, <clears throat> the true nature of firewood is not coming and going. The true nature of the images on the screen is just the screen, and the screen's not coming and going. And the dharma position of each person on the screen is that it, it's the, each person is dependent on all these conditions and impermanent, and at the same time, it's independent of anything. It's just this unchanging Buddha nature of the, of the screen. Both are true. Buddha nature is, um, is permanent and unchanging, and um, all impermanence is Buddha nature. You could say that the reality of both of those simultaneously is like abiding in the Dharma position. Firewood abides in the Dharma position of firewood, which fully includes and is interdependent with past and future. That's the impermanent aspect of the Dharma position. But it's also independent of past and future. Uh, there isn't um, anything changing ultimately in this um, reality of <clears throat> firewood. So that's uh, is a Tendai teaching about um, things abiding in their Dharma position that Dogen was very fond of, and uh, Kazan brings up here. People think that everything abides in its dharma position. What a what a great teaching to, that expresses the unity of the two truths. But actually, just talking and thinking about that, this is laughable. Great. If this were the Buddha Dharma, why did Shakyamuni Buddha appear in the world, or why did Bodhidharma come from the West? However. From the venerable Shakyamuni, the highest, to the ancestral teachers in China, there has been no distinction in terms of awakening. Who of them was not greatly awakened? If every one of them understood the truth on the basis of words, and thus considered truth to be discussion, how many Buddhas and ancestors would there be? In other words, if all we had to do was just understand the words, it's not to say that that's always easy. Um, but um, there'd be a lot more Buddhists and ancestors if that's all it took. Therefore, if you abandon that approach and thoroughly experience this place, translator puts in parentheses, the true self, you will be able to become Buddhists and ancestors. If you are not all greatly awakened ultimately in the way of the ancestral teachers you are not that person <coughs> that one therefore do not dwell either in total purity or in the clarity of emptiness or in the clarity of empty space so he's changing his tune a little bit here you have to um directly verify this beyond words and discussions. After clarifying the teachings and contemplating them, that's why we have Sashin. And, uh, but also, 
then we might say, well, then we'll just rest in this pure um, clarity of space beyond our words. But but Kazan says, don't dwell in this total purity or this cl- in this clarity of space. Just to think that there's any place to dwell or rest at all. He just keeps trying to pull pull the rug out in any way he can. Uh, priest Chuanzi, uh, which means um, the boat pilot, is the nickname of this ancestor. Um, Chuanzi, Du uh, Qing of Huating. Um, said to his student Jiaxian <clears throat> this verse, and Kazan doesn't tell the story, and it's a long, involved story. But I'll just tell you the end of it is that uh, there's this teacher Jiaxian <clears throat> who um, wanted to practice further and asked his teacher, uh, um, "Is there anyone else who can help clarify this matter?" Uh, besides you, teacher, and uh, and the teacher said, "You, there's one person I can think of that could maybe help you, and uh, his name is the boatman, the boat pilot, Chuanzi, uh, and uh, he, um, I think he used to be a Buddhist monk, but then he retired, and." Uh, took up the job of just um of ferrying people across the river on this river boat. He thought that that would be um more enjoyable than just sitting zazen in a temple all the time. Very kind of wonderfully symbolic uh job for for a awakened um practitioner. I'll just ferry people across to the other shore. They want to get to the other shore of this river, so I'll take them there. And um, I don't know if I'll, if I'll charge them anything. Maybe I'll just ask for donations on this ferry boat. So that was his job. Apparently, this is this is a true um, story. And uh, he said weird things, so people knew that he must have had some kind of Zen background. But uh, they really just wanted to get to the other side of the river. So they never asked him much. And he's like, these people are missing a great chance. But uh, but uh, but this um, practitioner, Jiaoshan, his teacher, sent him, go find him. He's, he's, fair, he's on the boat there. But, um, you know, in the next province, you can go look for him. And he found him, and they had some dialogue back and forth. And... Uh, <clears throat> The boat, the boatman was very happy to meet a sincere Zen practitioner who was trying to get to the bottom of the matter. And, uh, the boatman, the boat monk was trying to, um, <clears throat> help him. So back and forth they went, getting closer and closer to verifying the truth through these words. And, um, <clears throat> and the boatman asked Yashan, um, some Dharma question, and Jashan was right on the verge of like, I know how to say it, and I'm about to answer you, when uh, the boat monk took his oar and knocked Jashan into the water. 
And um, right when he was about to speak, and then Joshua like came up out of the water and um, was about to say what he had to say again. And uh, Joshua like hit him back into the water with the oar again. <laughs> and he came up again and said, and the, and the boatman said, speak, speak. He was about to speak and he hit him under the water with the oar again. And this time when he came up out of the water, Jashan had his great awakening. <coughs> it worked. <laughs> so it's something about like, try to express this in words, but if you do, it, it's just gonna, um, it's, it's limited. So this, this being struck with the oar is just like cutting off this discriminating mind. Speak, speak, try it again. Boom. Keep cutting off the, the conceptual mind. And, uh, and, uh, Jashan had this awakening. And, um, and, um, the boat monk knew it. So, so, he said, great. This, my work is done as the boatman. I've been waiting for someone like you for years and years. Finally, um, I was able to complete my, my life's task of awakening somebody. So, um, here's my verse I leave you with. And this is what Kazan quotes. There must be a place without traces for concealing your body. A, pl- a place without any tracks to hide the body. But don't conceal your body in a place without any traces. I was at Yaoshan for 30 years, and I only understood this. That's the verse that uh, Chuanzi left uh, with um, Jiaoshan. So this is because Kazan said just before this, um, you have to awaken to the way of the ancestral teachers. But don't dwell in total purity or in the clarity of empty space. Just like this boat monk, Chuanza, said, there must be a place without any traces for hiding your body. But don't hide your body in a place with no traces. And... uh <clears throat> and Jashan received that verse and um, started to walk away. And the boat monk said, Wait a minute, Jashan. And Jashan turned back and, and he said, Do you think I had something else to tell you? And at that point he stood on the, on the rail of the boat, capsized his ferry boat, and the boat sank and, and, uh, Chuanza disappeared into the water, never to be seen again. <laughs> we love Zen, has these great stories. So, um, so then Kazan says, total purity is not a place to hide your body, <clears throat> conceal the body, um, zoshin, uh, Hiding the body is this Zen term that um, sometimes is used in a positive sense. Uh, it seems like um, like um, hide your body in the in the world of experience, um, so you, it doesn't stand out as something particular. 
hot or hide your body in in a total purity of suchness where you can't find a separate body. But here uh Keizan saying total purity is not a place to hide your body. I think he's just trying to say um don't fall into one side or the other about any of these teachings. Even though you say you have forgotten both subject and object, still the boat monk says that you must not hide your body in this place, in this place of non-duality of subject and object. It seems like the best place to hide the body, but don't even hide it there. There is no need to discuss past and present or delusion and enlightenment. When you thoroughly investigate the truth in this way, there are no walls in the ten directions and no gates in the four quarters. Everywhere it's clear and obvious. Therefore, work carefully and do not be hasty. Do you have any um, comments or questions thus far on today's story? Yes. Um, can you talk more about like the difference between the Buddha nature of sentient and non-sentient beings? Oh, the Buddha nature of non-sentient beings. I think that one Chinese teacher was like making an argument that it was like that actually the non-sentient beings do have the seed of like actually becoming a Buddha. So I think there's many ways to understand this this um, teaching from ancient China. Before Zen came on the scene, there was the Chen Tai school, I think was already talking about um, the, the Buddha nature of the non-sentient and the teaching of the non-sentient. And then um, <clears throat> the Zen people started talking about it, <coughs> starting with the... Um, Maybe starting with the uh, national teacher Wei Zhang, who is a, a Zen teacher um, who taught Buddha nature a lot in a in a wonderful way. And um, Dung Shan heard about this teaching, and uh, <clears throat> and. Uh, and uh, then. Dungshan was practicing with Guishan and asked him, Lately I hear that the national teacher Huizhang has this saying about non-sentient beings teaching the Dharma, but I still don't understand its subtleties. <clears throat> just like Mel. You're just like our ancestor Dungshan. So Guishan said, Do you remember the story? And Dungshan said, yeah, I remember. And uh, Weishan said, well then, give it a try. <laughs> try. Give it a shot to, to tell me the story. So Dungshan said, a monk asked, what is the mind of the ancient Buddhas? And uh national teacher said, fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. And uh, the monk said, well, aren't these non-sentient things? And a national teacher said, they are. 
And the monk said, will you explain how these non-sentient things teach the Dharma? And the national teacher said, they constantly teach, they vigorously teach without ceasing. And the monk said, well, then why can't I hear it? Why can't I hear the pebbles and tiles teaching? And national teacher said, you don't hear it, but that doesn't hinder the one that does hear it. And uh, the monk said, I wonder if anyone else can hear it. And national teacher said, the, the saints, the sages can hear it. And the monk said, can you hear it? And national teacher said, no, I can't hear it. And the monk said, if you can't hear it, how do you know the non-sentient beings teach the Dharma? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Isn't this just speculation if you don't hear their teaching? So maybe we can hear this as, there's, who is the you, right, um, that he's asking? Do you hear it? Um, I, the person, don't hear it. <clears throat> the sages hear it, but I, the person, don't hear it. If you, the person, don't hear it, how do you know that they teach the Dharma? And the national teacher said, fortunately, I can't hear it. We might understand this as I, this person, can't hear it. If I did hear it, then I would be the same as these saints, these sages, and then you wouldn't be able to hear me teach the Dharma. (laughs) And the monk said, then do sentient beings have no part in it? It's another good question, right? Do sentient beings, like people, like you and I, have no part in this hearing and the teaching of the non-sentient? And the national teacher said, um, I teach this for the sake of, of sentient beings, not for these sages. This is kind of related to our story because I'm teaching it in words, that words are for sentient beings, and uh, these sages um, that hear it, um, hear it in this wordless way. <coughs> but I teach for sentient beings. The monk said, after sentient beings hear it, then what? And the national teacher said, then they're no longer sentient beings. The monk said, what's the scriptural basis for the teaching, <laughs> the teaching of the Dharma by the non-sentient? <laughs> In other words, yeah, you have an okay story, but like, are you just making all this up? <laughs> and, uh, I like this one that from, from the national teacher said, clearly words that don't accord with the scriptures, the sutras, are not discussed among gentlemen. <laughs> In other words, like, how dare I make up some new teaching? Like, if there weren't this teaching of the true self, of Buddha nature in the, in the sacred scriptures of, uh, the Buddha, the authentic Mahayana scriptures from India, we shouldn't talk that way. But since there are, we can talk that way. Uh, he says, don't you know that the Avatamsaka Sutra says, worlds teach, sentient beings teach, and all things of the past, present, and future teach. So, uh, <clears throat> um, Dungshan remembered that whole story 
right? This is a story he heard about some other monk talking to the national teacher, and he was able to recount it for his teacher, Guishan. And then uh, when he finished, Guishan um, said to Dungshan, I have it too, but I have had no chance to meet an awakened person <clears throat> or someone who understands it. Uh, Dungshan said, it's still not clear to me. Please instruct me. And Guishan raised his whisk. Zen teachers have that fly whisk, right? It's called a non-sentient item. It's just a, a old horsetail. He raised it, which they often raise as a teaching of the non-sentient. He raised the whisk and said, do you understand? And uh, Guishan, I mean, Dungshan said, no, I don't. Please explain. And Guishan said, I can't explain it to you in words. The uh, Dungshan then asked, is there someone else? who taught, who like wanted to practice the way when you did, someone else I could ask about this? And Guishan said, um, yes, there's, there's someone named Yunyan living in these caves. Um, if you stir up the grass and gaze into the wind, you'll find him. And Dungshan uh, said, what's he like? And Guishan said, one time he asked me, um, what should a student do when he wants to serve the teacher? And I said, he can serve the teacher for the first time when he ends delusion quickly. And he asked, uh, would he still be able to not violate the teacher's teaching? And I said, the main thing is that you shouldn't say that I'm here. <clears throat> so that's a whole other discussion. But... <laughs> But uh, Dungshan was um, was struck by, oh, that's what he's like? Then I'm going to go find him. And so he went straight to Yunyan, and he told him the whole story of his meeting with Guishan. And then he asked, who can hear the non-sentient teach the Dharma? And Yunyan said, the non-sentient can hear it. And uh, <clears throat> Dungshan said, can you hear it? And Yunyan said, if I heard it, you couldn't he- hear me teach the Dharma. Similarly, and uh, Dungshan said, why can't I hear it? And Yunyan raised his whisk and said, do you hear it? <laughs> and uh, Dungshan said, no, I don't hear it. Yunyan said, if you don't hear me teach the Dharma, how much less can you hear the non-sentient being teach the Dharma? And Dungshan said, what's the scriptural basis for teaching of the non-sentient? <laughs> and Yunyan said, don't you know that the Amitabha Sutra says, streams, birds, and trees all praise the Buddha and praise the Dharma? And hearing this, Dungshan was awakened. But he still had some doubts, as we heard, until he crossed the river and saw his reflection and then realized that there's nothing to seek externally outside the self. And then, um, so did that clarify the teaching of the non-sentient? <laughs> For you. Are non-sentient beings deluded? 
Our non-sentient beings deluded. No, they're not. Because that would make sentient beings special. Sentient beings are are kind of special in that they are deluded. That's what makes sentient beings special. It's true. And the non-sentient beings are constantly teaching the Dharma. And then Kazan comments on this. Um, and, uh, and says, um, and says that the national teacher also said, when asked to explain what non-sentient is, so a sentient being can understand it, the national teacher said, right now within everyone, when ideas about categories of ordinary and holy don't arise or cease at all, there is a subtle consciousness or a... um a mystical knowing, like a dark knowing, a subtle consciousness that's unrelated to existence and non-existence, that's keenly aware but doesn't grasp anything. So that's Another teaching about non-sentient beings <clears throat> from the national teacher, who is the one who kind of got this whole thing rolling with non-sentient beings. Kazan says, usually people think that non-sentient means fences, walls, tiles, pebbles, lamps, and pillars, but that's not what the national teacher says. There's this dark knowing this mystical knowing, subtle consciousness that's keenly aware that's not the grasping of ordinary consciousness. So um, we have that teaching. And then we could say that this subtle consciousness that pervades um, everything um, <clears throat> that's like space that is the host, that that, um, that when a pebble appears, it appears um, as an expression of this subtle consciousness. Any pebble that we, sentient beings, have ever experienced has always appeared within the space of awareness, hasn't it? We can't find any pebbles outside of this um, uh, dark knowing how could we ever find a uh, tile um, external to mind? And therefore, these walls, tiles, and pebbles, are they not this subtle consciousness that is always teaching reality itself? And therefore, the pebbles and tiles that appear within it, arising and ceasing within it, are also teaching the, uh, the Dharma incessantly, and they're teaching it for um, non-sentient beings. You could say that 
the sentient being, if sentient being is defined as deluded, as sentient being is, is a synonym for dualistic consciousness, and Buddha is a synonym for non-dual awareness, then, um, sentient beings don't hear this teaching of the non-sentient. <clears throat> yes? What are the instructions of all in what is the what is the instruction for when encountering the dark knowing? Yeah, for for managing that presence of sentient being with the presence of the dark knowing. So so when when um when a sentient being um you could say verifies the dark knowing, then um Strictly speaking, with no more instructions would be needed, um, that um, everything rolls along smoothly um, at that time. But um, and then, and strictly speaking, like they're no longer a sentient being, <laughs> according to at least teachers. But um, but then they forget. Yeah, can there be awareness of of the walls and tiles and pebbles? Well, well of course, this. Can there be can there be a sentient being simultaneously with a dark knowing? If if there if a sentient being appears within dark knowing, sentient being and dark knowing are both present. Then um, what's that? What's the barrier? The barrier for one is present. If if they're really um, seen, if the sentient being could be understood as um, as a just a present expression of the dark knowing, a manifestation of the dark knowing, at that at such a time, then the sentient being is no longer a barrier to the dark knowing. It's there. Yeah. But it seems often that the sentient being feels like, like a barrier. Often, like like when I um, think of myself as a sentient being, I feel like I can't access Buddha nature. It's like, where is it? And uh, my ver- my my sentient beingness that's looking for something external is um, seems to um, be a barrier. Seems to block. The, the dark knowing of Buddha nature. So, so sometimes it's said that, um, <clears throat> sometimes it's said that what are the obscurations to Buddha nature? Essentially, what obscures, what seems to hide Buddha nature? Um, really, the only obscuration to Buddha nature is sentient beings. <laughs> that's, that's one interesting teaching from I think the eighth karmapa in Tibetan tradition, um, which it's it's interesting because we also hear, like in the Nirvana Sutra, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. So um, the nature of sentient beings is Buddha nature, and then at the same time we can have the teaching that 
Well, then what obscures this Buddha nature? That is the nature of all sentient beings. What obscures it? Sentient beings. This is a wonderful thing to contemplate, I think, that, that the nature of a sentient being is Buddha nature. Well, then what blocks the Buddha nature? What seems to hide the Buddha nature? Sentient beings whose nature is Buddha nature. Can you follow that? And, um, and the sentient beings are the ones that, um, don't hear the teaching of the non-sentient and, uh, <clears throat> the non-sentient hear the teaching of the non-sentient. So, it's a big topic, but we heard most of the stories about it from, uh, from our dear ancestor, Dungshan. Yes. It's difficult for me to wrap around what you're saying, other than... Me too. (laughs) (laughs) But we all, there's food in nature. It's everything. I find, in my personal experience, when I start looking for something, it's really difficult to find what I'm looking for. But when I stop looking... I'll find what I'm looking for. You know what I mean? I, maybe it might be years later, but like I found something in the drawer the other day that I've been looking for forever. <laughs> and it, and there it was. So, yes. you, you don't have to, if we are looking for, I think that striving and seeking and kind of taking away all our energy. And if we just be quiet, it, it'll lie. Yes, there is that teaching of Buddha nature. Um, when we are very looking for it as something, some object or some experience seems to, seems to hide it. And when we, um, when we, um, no longer are looking for it in that way, looking for it as an objective experience, then, um, it reveals itself sometimes, right? Um, so then, um, then there's this, tricky issue, right? Because um, most beings are not looking for Buddha nature, <laughs> right? And, uh, and But they seem to be caught up in all kinds of suffering too, right? So, so but then, then as practitioners that hear about this, so then we're looking for Buddha nature, but then sometimes that makes us suffer more because we can't find it. <laughs> so um, what a dilemma. So you said if we just, if we just be quiet and, um, still, then it can reveal itself. Um, which is true. And this, this goes back to this teaching of these three kinds of wisdom. If, um, <clears throat> some, if we've never heard any teachings about this, uh, Buddha nature and we're just quiet and still, it might not reveal itself because then we just become really interested in, um, I don't know, the sounds of the crickets or something. I've never noticed them before because I'm always chattering, but now that I'm still, I notice the sound of the crickets or I, um, I see the flowers that I didn't see before. Buddha nature's right there, but still, now we get, maybe get caught up in how beautiful the flowers and the cricket sounds are. So, um, but if we hear these teachings of that there is an, an unborn, undying, 
spacious presence that's um, free from any objective qualities. We hear this, and then we we contemplate it conceptually, and then we we just rest in the stillness. With this teaching, it's kind of like percolating in uh, in our storehouse consciousness. Then, um, then maybe it's it more likely reveals itself to us in that way. So words seem to be the fingers pointing at the moon seem to be helpful. Words seem to be helpful, and uh, <coughs> and then um, and then at some point we stop we stop looking externally, which is actually you said something very similar to what Dungshan said in this verse, right? Avoid seeking it externally, or you will be far apart from your true self. Now I go on alone and independent, but I meet it everywhere. So, um, yeah, not seeking externally. So Kazan ends, as usual, with a verse. I have some humble words this morning to express this situation. Would you like to hear them? His verse goes, The discussions by Sabuti and Vamalakirti did not reach it. The discussions um, by Kokyo in the Great Assembly did not reach it. Malgyayana and Shariputra saw it as if blind. If you wish to understand the meaning of this intimately, when is the flavor of salt not appropriate? And uh, salt. <laughs> so one interpretation is that um, uh, the Buddha said that um, <clears throat> all my teachings of Dharma have one taste, one flavor, which is the flavor of liberation, just as... Um, all the oceans in the world have one taste or flavor that's the taste of salt. All, all the oceans have this one flavor. So, um, when is the flavor of salt not appropriate? The liberating flavor of salt that pervades all, um, oceans and all teachings. All these 84,000 Teachings of the Buddha, words and words and words are all actually pervaded by the flavor of salt. The Buddha hardly ever talks about salt, but all this, all those words and teachings are, are uh, pervaded by the flavor of liberation, uh, salt. So, um, these discussions of Sabuti and Vimalakirti, these didn't reach it. Madhgayayana and Shariputra saw it as if blind. If you wish to understand the meaning of this intimately, when is the flavor of salt not appropriate? <coughs> Get the story of the uh, eighth ancestor, Buddhanandi. And, uh, 
Kazan's um, maddening commentary uh, saying that any words um, aren't it 